One of the fastest ways to grow your business or professional practice is to focus on a specific segment of the audience with a dedicated message. This is called market segmentation. It's also called niche marketing. It doesn't mean you adjust your entire business or professional practice to only serving one type of customer. It can mean that, but it doesn't have to. You can have three, four, a dozen different segments that you target with a dozen different messages. My guest today is Brett Amron. He's an attorney and his practice focuses on business litigation as well as bankruptcy. But Brett himself has a very interesting area of focus. It's a very interesting niche that he markets to his specific audience of clients and evangelists. You see, Brett's been a litigator his entire career. He advises clients in complex business and bankruptcy litigation matters, but his focus, the niche that he really drills down on is director and officer liability cases. We're going to talk with him about why he selected that niche market. We're going to talk with him about how it's paid off for him, but the real important factor you need to take away today is that you can be a great lawyer, but if you don't focus on getting the word out about where your practice is headed and how you can help people in a specific segment, nobody will ever know you. Now, Brett represents court-appointed fiduciaries, trustees, receivers, corporations, shareholders, individuals, creditors, committees, and secured and unsecured creditors. And he does this in conjunction with bankruptcy actions. He began practicing law in Miami. Uh, he was a prosecutor. And after he left the prosecutor's office, he joined a large local firm in the bankruptcy litigation practice group. And he became a partner there. In 2008, Brett left that firm. He took a chance and he went out on his own and he started his own practice and practiced on his own for a year. And then he met and joined forces with his current partner, Jeffrey Bast. And in 2009, they founded Bast Amron. Now, this is a firm that is widely recognized in South Florida as one of the top firms in delivering sophisticated advice to a whole host of different clients who have complex business disputes. They are in particular demand as the market becomes more and more tight and financing dries up and more and more businesses are reorganizing. So we're fortunate, very fortunate to get Brett to join us today, given how busy he is. So please welcome Mr. Brett Amron to the inside. BS show. Hey, Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Well, it's uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. And, you know, we did that whole buildup about your professional life and how and how good you are as a lawyer. And I know firsthand I've seen you in action. But I think the real important thing that I want to talk about today, and we're going to put it right up front for the people in our audience, is your holistic approach to the practice of law, being an entrepreneur, being a, a leader in a business that has 
uh, a good deal, a, a, new, a, a bunch of employees. So let's talk about you're you're an excellent dad. You're uh, a good husband from from what I understand. I mean, I, who knows if I'm getting the truth, but I hear you're a good husband. Um, <laughs> And one-sided. you're an excellent, yeah. yeah, it's one-sided. You're an excellent, excellent partner. Uh, your partner brags about working with you all the time. So let's talk about the holistic approach. I mean, you're, you've got the whole package going. I know it's a work in progress as we all are, but talk about your philosophy about, um, about being a lawyer, running your law firm and, uh, being a dad and a husband. Well, thank you for that. And the buildup, I, I need to take that recording and play it, uh, for my family. I appreciate that. Um, so, so look, I mean, I, it's uh, no magic. I mean, it's it's really trying to keep all the balls in the air, um, at, you know, and, and at any one time, um, you know, one ball may fall a little closer to the ground and you've got to give it a little more attention. Um, and that may be, you know, if I'm in trial or things here are just crazy hectic or we've got, you know, issues with certain employees or whatever, you know, we're going to have to focus on that and, and maybe family kind of suffers. Or if, you know, there's a family issue or I want to spend time and, you know, that maybe I'm going to be away from, from the business for a little bit. Um, and I know everyone always talks about work-life balance. Um, my view is harmony. Um, there's really no such thing as work-life balance, right? It's harmony. It's trying to get the two of them to flow together uh, as best as you can. Um, and the third prong to that is really taking care of yourself um, and being in tune with mental and physical, um, you know, your mental and physical well-being, because if you're not okay, then, you know, you're not going to be okay to your family and you're not going to be okay to your employees as well as your clients. Um, And, you know, I I heard this recently and I, I love the analogy, and that is when you're on an airplane and they run through, or used to be on an airplane pre COVID and they run through, uh, you know, the, the safety um, protocols and what do they tell you to do with the oxygen masks when they come down? They tell you to put it on yourself first, because if you don't, if you're not breathing oxygen, then you can't help others. And so the same holds true in terms of your physical and mental well-being. And you really need to, you know, be in tune with that. And that doesn't mean that it has to be every single day. Um, I, I really do find that a regimen um, and a schedule and, and staying on that is really helpful. Um, and, and for me, you know, I, I get up super early in the morning. I get my exercise out of the way because that helps me obviously physically, but it also helps me mentally. Uh, and I know a lot of people in my office would say, yeah, we know when Brett exercises, because when I get back, my head is usually clear and I've thought of a million things and I start sending emails. Um, but, but it also helps with family, right? Cause I'm out, I come back, I see the kids, they go to school, I get ready, I come to the office, and I'm ready to start the day. And I don't have to focus on, well, when can I leave the office so I can go home and, and exercise, I can just go home and, and kind of be with family when I'm a, when, you know, when my schedule dictates. Um, so it's really just kind of figuring out on a daily basis, a harmony, and, and a regimen and schedule kind of help with that. So do you have everything in your life scheduled out or is there is there room for flexibility? Like how much is scheduled and how much is how much yeah. flexibility is there? So there's some flexibility. It has to be right. Um, I've got three kids. I've you know, we've got 20 plus employees. We've got clients and judges who 
you know, uh, an opposing counsel uh, who, who may do different things. And so there's got to be some flexibility. Um, but there's some things that I really do try to maintain and not have a lot of flexibility on on a daily basis. And that is exercise uh, for me is a lifeblood. Um, you know, I hear about and I always tell people I have to meditate and I really do want to at some point in my life uh, have a meditation practice. Um, but for me, exercise is somewhat meditative. And so it really does help. Uh, and if I can't exercise on a particular day, I feel it mentally and physically, even just one day. And so I really that's why I get up so early, because I know at five o'clock in the morning, there's very little that is going to happen that would prevent me from exercising, even when I travel. Um, you know, one of the things I always bring with me when I was traveling is running shoes and, and at least one outfit uh, if I have to to exercise, because it really does help. And so I just do try to do that. Listen, there's times when I can't whether it be because I have to help, um, I have to drive a child to school or I have to help some, do something in the house or I have to be here because, you know, something calls me to be at the office or to jump on a, a Zoom, whatever it is. Um, but that's really um, as close to inflexible as I am. Um, I really do try to give as much time and attention as I can to my family, even when I'm here. Um, you know, my, my kids are kind of older now. And so I get texts or calls from them sometimes during the day. And I really do try to be as attentive as I can to that. Uh, same thing with, you know, with my wife, if she calls, um, and I do really try and I know when the end of the day is for them and when they're either getting out of school or they're, you know, coming, getting home. And I do try and text them or reach out to them and connect with them before I get home. And I do try to get home, um, as early as I can either to sit down for dinner or to kind of hang with them um, before if I have to jump back on and work later, you know, then, then I can do that. Now, did you, let's talk a little bit about pre pandemic and possibly now, cause, cause you're, as I'm, as I'm talking to you, uh, we're doing this on video for those of you who are listening. And as I'm talking to Brad, I see he's in the office. So pre pandemic, which is kind of similar to the way things are now. And then when you were home, did you set boundaries with your kids and with your wife? Hey, listen, when I'm in here and I got the door closed, don't come in. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. how did you how did you handle all that? Because people struggle with that too. Yeah. So I mean, listen, I I have the benefit that my kids are a little bit older. Um, I know kids, you know, people with kids who are toddlers or infants, even it's much harder. You know, it's really much harder on them. Um, my kids were older, and so it was a little bit easier to tell them, listen, if my door is closed please don't come in. I'll open it when you can interrupt me. Um, but then there were times if I had court hearings or in deposition, I had two, two layers of security. Uh, I had two notes, one on the bedroom door and one on the office door that said, dad in court, dad in deposition, do not disturb. Um, and so by and large, uh, it, you know, uh, I, they were fine and, and we had boundaries in that regard. Um, but I also had to keep those boundaries, too, uh, with them in school and, and being mindful of their time. Um, I would, you know, periodically, if they had a lunch break, I would try to make sure that, you know, I could take a break while they were at lunch and go downstairs again, you know, when they were home being uh, schooled at home and when we were all sort of locked down and, and try and spend some time with them when they were on a lunch break. I would take a little break and, and spend some time with them. So. 
Um, I, it was, it wasn't too, too bad, but I know I was kind of fortunate given the age of my children. And I definitely saw some of the employees here that, that, um, you know, had some struggles with that and, and boy, I, that, that's tough. I, I really felt for them. When, when you're, uh, when you're going throughout the course of your day, I find that there's there we come to different inflection points, like moments of truth throughout the time uh, that we're that we're in the course of the day, and the choice we make can either uh, take our day down one path or down the other, and something has to be sacrificed, right? Now I get the impression from you that exercise is never sacrificed, right? Are you is that is that something that it's you know it's untouchable that that makes you feel good about yourself it clears your mind and it's the foundation of your day is that is that a true statement yeah that, that is a true statement it's not to say that it's never sacrificed because there's times when i just can't control it but man that's that's really the last that's the last thing uh, that i really want to give up because again nobody's up in my house and you know even if i was emailing people they're they're not responding um, and so if I'm carving that up and it's there in the schedule, you know, um, I, I can get it done. But you do sacrifice extra sleep, right? So you do, yes. you, you end up, yeah. you end up sacrificing that. So that has to go yeah. kind of by the wayside. Sleep is definitely something that I've, uh, sacrificed over the years. Um, I, it is a focus of mine and something that I need to work on. Um, so I'm trying, I know I can't, it's hard to get up earlier, um, than I do. Um, and I really can't get up later. So I'm, I'm working on that. And so I'm struggling with trying to get to bed a little earlier if I can, um, to, to sleep, uh, to get a little bit more sleep, but it's something that that is something that I've sacrificed for sure. Yeah. All right. So now let's get into, um, a little bit about the practice of law. You mentioned, uh, you know, having those two layers of security when you're doing a hearing or a deposition, what is, what was your feeling about, um, handling, uh, some of those things remotely? How, how do you, how did you feel? Cause you're, uh, you're excellent at, uh, at taking depositions. You're, you're excellent at getting to the heart of, uh, of the matter in any conversation. I can just imagine working with, uh, you know, working with, uh, someone who's opposed to you, you would really dig in and you're intuitive. You probably read people's body language very well. How did you, how did you find taking depositions on video? How is it, what kind of an adjustment was it? And how did you, how did you respond to it? Uh, yeah. So I'd say depositions were probably the hardest thing to, um, to adapt to. Um, you just have to really focus on the person. Uh, and their face, facial expressions as best you can. Um, but that I think was the biggest adjustment because you can't be in the room with them. Um, body language, like you said, is key. And so it's really hard. Um, you know, I, I've done phone depots uh, on a limited basis over the years. I really tried not to. Um, so the video depots are a little bit better. Uh, it depends on the connection and depends on all that. So you can adjust to it, but yeah, I think that one was the biggest adjustment in terms of wanting to be in the room with them. Court hearings, um, you know, I, I am, I really do not like other than sort of very basic uh, hearings or basic motion practice. I don't like phone hearings, uh, zoom hearings. I'm a big fan of, I really do like them. I think they're very efficient, non-evidentiary, uh, hearings, I would say, um, very efficient, very effective, 
you get the judges singular attention. Uh, you, everyone is staring at, at each other in theory. Um, sometimes it's almost worse than being in a courtroom because in a courtroom, you know, a judge may look away, you know, and someone makes a face or someone does something. And, but now you're really under a microscope. Um, and so I, I, I actually am a big proponent of and I hope they stick around. Uh, I do like them. Uh, a lot. Uh, you can appear in court in Tampa, in Orlando, in Seattle, in Delaware, and you can do it from the comfort of your home or the comfort of your office. Uh, so yeah, I, I do like it as again, much more efficient. Um, I've also done mediations uh, by Zoom. Uh, those, I've had some success with them. Um, and, and, you know, it depends on the mediator and how the mediator runs it, and the mediator's comfort level with technology. Uh, but if you've got good counsel and you've got sophisticated clientele, um, it, it can work. And it definitely is easier when you're when you have matters that may be pending in a different jurisdiction. You've got a mediator that you want, let's say, in New York, uh, and you've got a lawyer in Chicago on the other side, and you've got clients that are spread across the country. It's certainly easier to get a mediation on the calendar um, and, and get everybody together. Uh, and, and, you know, I've had some success with it for sure. Um, I, listen, it's doesn't, there are definitely, uh, cases where you want to be in the room with people. You want to be in the room with your client. I can't pull my client aside and just talk to them quietly. I can't pull the mediator aside and go right outside the room and, and talk to the mediator. You know, that's a little bit more, um, it's a more difficult to do that. You can do it, but it's just a little bit more difficult, a little more impersonal this way. Yeah. Do you think this is going to become another pressure point when things kind of uh, move back to more normal, like maybe the end of 2021, uh, beginning of 2022? Maybe they'll have choices, right? And the parties will have to agree or the judge will decide whether the case is going to be heard in person or via video. Is this going to be just another pressure point, another way to kind of hold the other side to account or, you know, make the other side make a decision they don't want to make? Um, I, I think judges may end up, as they normally do anyway, dictate whether they're going to have these hearings by Zoom or what hearings are going to be by Zoom or not. Um, I'm not sure. I guess some judges could decide that they're going to let parties um, make that choice. But I think that for well, for but I, so practice, I make a motion and I say, uh, Your Honor, listen, my my client is going to be in Zurich uh, mm-hmm. during that time period rather than have him fly back here. Can Mr. Amron depose him uh, via video? We did it for yeah. 18 months during a pandemic. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, you could object or you could you could say, OK, you know, I'll stipulate to that. That's not a problem. Just another sure. thing to, you know, another another thing to argue about. Just another variable in the in a in an already complicated equation. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be some of that. Um, I do think that business travel is is going to be reduced um, a little bit. Um, but again, there's really there's nothing like sort of sitting in front of a client um, or sitting in front of a deponent. But yeah, there's going to be some people that are going to say, listen, my client can't travel back. Here's the here are the reasons why. But we'll certainly make them available or he or she available by video. Uh, and we can do that. Um, and then honestly, I, I don't know that a judge can force a lawyer to do that. Um, but, 
you know, there may be circumstances where the judge says, look, you have a finite amount of time to take the deposition. Uh, and I'm giving you, they're telling you that this person is available to be deposed on these dates by video. And you can take them by video at that time, but I'm not going to extend your time to take the deposition. So you can take it in person. As a judge could say that. So there's yeah. definitely going to be some things that are going to be permanent changes to the practice, um, you know, for sure going forward. And, and I think that, you know, I said Zoom hearings, I think, are going to be here. Maybe even some Zoom mediations will continue, um, you know, on and, and video depots may, may as well. Again, it just kind of depends on the case and it it's just there's a lot of variables to it. Yeah, yeah. How did you uh, how did you get into uh, being a litigator? You were you were a prosecutor, right? And then and then you you just how did you did you always want to do uh, commercial litigation, or you just one day you just decided, look, I just can't do this anymore. I gotta I gotta figure something else out. How did it go? So when I I was a finance major in college, when I went to law school, I thought I'm gonna be just an in-house corporate lawyer. You know, because I'll take my finance degree and that's what I'm going to do. Um, by chance, I uh, got a job as an intern, a law clerk, I should say, um, with a, a local lawyer here in town, very prominent criminal defense, did some civil litigation as well uh, here in town. His name's Joel Hirschhorn at the time, his associate, now partner, Brian Bieber. Uh, and I, I, you know, started working for them and I got the bug and I loved it. I loved the litigation aspect of it. Um, and I just really, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of writing for them. I was kind of seeing the ins and outs and they gave me a lot of access. They gave all their law clerks a lot of access. Uh, and so I got to really see it, you know, firsthand. Um, and I really started to enjoy it. Um, and from there, uh, I, um, I then decided that I wanted to be a litigator. And I remember talking to Joel and saying, all right, well, if I want to be a litigator, what do you recommend? And talking it through with him. And even though he was a criminal defense lawyer, he, he recommended to me at the time, go to this, if you can go to the state attorney's office, you're going to get great experience in a courtroom. And I did. Um, and luckily uh, I, I got the job and, you know, I got unbelievable courtroom experience from day one, I mean, you're put in basically, you know, under fire. Uh, you've got tons and tons of files and, you know, uh, you could go to trial before a jury with an arrest affidavit and nothing else. Um, you know, with trying to interview police officers outside when the jury's been picked and just trying to figure out, build your case right there on the fly. And so it, it really was helpful. What it was helpful for was um, getting me comfortable and anyone who obviously, um, you know, does this, getting me comfortable with being able to walk into a courtroom. Uh, and I like to say that it kind of gave me the framework, right? And then the substantive law is, you know, the drywall and the roof and the floor and all the pretty things around it. Um, and when I was sort of at the time, at my end of when I wanted to be a prosecutor, I kind of was thinking about what I wanted to do. And I want definitely wanted to do work with, you know, sophisticated issues and sophisticated people and, and really kind of larger matters because I got the bug to build a case. And I really loved that. And that's the being a prosecutor, you know, you have to find the evidence and you got to build the case. And um, and and I 
you know, fell into, uh, was lucky enough to, to, you know, get hired by a local firm, um, and, and had the ability from day one to represent, you know, court appointed fiduciaries, uh, build cases, um, from, you know, from scratch, um, and prosecute those cases, uh, and, and get recoveries for here for the estates and for creditors. And so I, it's, it's really, they're very similar, uh, very similar approach uh, from being a prosecutor to what I do, what I do now. Interesting. All right. So now I, I haven't, hadn't thought of that before. Now, you, you don't just handle cases that arise uh, throughout through the course of bankruptcy. You also handle general complex commercial litigation cases mm-hmm. as well. And your focus, you personally... Is there is there a particular type of case you personally choose to work on versus what you have your associates work on? So, no, I mean, I guess the 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 larger and more complex cases require more of my attention, I would say. But we usually try to staff cases efficiently, right, and effectively. So, um, if it's a breach of contract case and it's a one count case, and we're either on the defense or the or the um, plaintiff side. You know, I, I, we have lawyers here who can handle that, and it's not really as efficient and effective for me at my rate to, you know, handle those cases. And so we usually have people at a, at a more fi- effective rate handle the day-to-day with me kind of jumping in um, and, you know, helping uh, with strategy or with oversight, things like that. Um, but the larger, more complex cases, I, I definitely have more of a hand in. Um, on a day-to-day, uh, although, again, we do have fantastic lawyers uh, that work here that, that help on those, that drive those cases and, and on a day-to-day as well. Um, but, but I'd say at this point, I really do love the, the, um, the fiduciary cases that we build um, on a contingent basis because, you know, I, you don't have to worry about the, the billing aspect of it and, and, and the fees, I mean, the fees are already baked in, right? We agree on the front end, this is going to be a contingent case and, you know, whatever we recover, we get our fee based on that. So, um, you know, I, I, I do, I do enjoy those and, and the puzzles, putting the puzzles together. Now talk a little bit about the niche you've carved out for, for yourself and the reputation that your firm has as being really good at directors and officers liability cases. How did you discover that those were that those were going to be good cases for you? And how did you decide to really hone in on those? Because at any given time, you, you, you generally have at least one good one in the works. Sometimes you could have as, as many as two or three. So how did you how did you discover that that was going to be a good little uh, niche market for you? So I started in those cases, actually, uh, when I left the state attorney's office, uh, went to the firm um, that I spent eight years at uh, here in town. And really the first case that uh, was left on the day, I mean, literally, I walked into the office, there was a binder, um, no flowers, no balloons, just a binder. Um, and it was for... You Keys know, to the desk and a binder. Good luck, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was a receivership, a state court receivership uh, up in Tallahassee. And, you know, what 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 are the claims? What do we have? You know, and so the first thing we did was a contempt action against the insiders for three million dollars. And candidly, within I think it was a month or two of me starting, we're in trial in Tallahassee on that case. Um, 
And the second component of that was a DNO, a litigation against the former officers and directors of the company. Uh, and there was insurance to that. And, and so I got a taste of it. I then became sort of the guy, you know, it was me and, and one other one other lawyer. There was a partner uh, above me who were primarily working on any case that came in that was a large uh, corporate case where, you know, there's officers and directors and there may be insurance, there may be, you know, claims. We were tasked with investigating it. And I got a taste for reviewing insurance policies, interpreting them, being able to litigate some of those issues over insurance coverage. And so to me, again, it was a natural extension of, of my experience as a prosecutor because it's investigating those claims, albeit civil in nature. Um, and, and it really built from there. And so I just started doing more and more of those. And when I came, when I started my own firm, you know, I, it was, it was as a solo for a year, I mean, that, you know, it's going to be very hard to get somebody to give um, a solo practitioner uh, a case like that. Um, and I understand that. Uh, when Jeff and I got together, uh, we started to really push uh, the experience in that area. We're fortunate enough to get one and then another and then another. And we really started to build that experience because people got to see that we can get results. Uh, we know what we're doing. Um, and now we've kind of pitched it, not just locally, but state of Florida and other jurisdictions outside of Florida based on relationships and, and having the opportunity to meet other fiduciaries and other lawyers um, who can, you know, get us again in front of people, the right people and opportunities to pitch our services. Do we, do we get every single case we pitch? No, we don't. But um, at least, you know, we're getting those opportunities uh, I think, candidly, given how we do it and what we do, that there's nobody better. I'm not saying that there's that we're the best. I mean, you know, but but I, I we do a really good job and, and an efficient, uh, efficient job at that. One of the things I've always recognized about these cases and you is your ability to pick the case. Tell everybody how important selecting the case is. You can't, it's a contingency case. So yep. you, I, I have a, I have a saying, it's like real estate, right? You, you make your money when you, in commercial real estate, you make your money when you buy the property, not necessarily when you sell it, because if you buy it at a good price, you'll always be okay. Um, yep. Tell, tell the folks who are with us today, why picking these cases is so important. And then give us a little window into what you look at when you pick these cases. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, on, when you're on a contingent basis, right, a contingent fee basis, you're tied to the outcome. And so, you know, whenever you look at a case uh, and a client comes in, you're going to look at, can you prove liability? That's one aspect of it. What are the damages? Can you prove damages? That's another aspect. And then finally, collectability. Um, and if there's insurance coverage, well, then that, that just gives you one source of recovery and then you have to kind of look and analyze the policy to make sure that, you know, the coverage is live, that, that you know, there's certainly an opportunity to assert a claim. And then in terms of, you know, whether or not there's liability and what the damages are, you know, we, we can dig through. We, we've got enough experience that we can dig through, you know, if it is a bankruptcy or receivership, we can dig through some of the, you know, filings. We can, if it's a publicly traded company, we can, we dig through you know, some of the SEC filings, we dig through the internet is great to find some information out about um, the company about 
principles, things they were doing. Uh, we can search dockets uh, all over the country to see if there was other litigation out there, if there was, you know, fraud claims or criminal claims or whatever it is, and get really an insight um, into, you know, what the potential claims might be. And again, keeping in mind that we still have to do our investigation. Um, we're usually brought to the table, I don't want to say the 11th hour, but usually, you know, a case has kind of gone through its process, either a bankruptcy or receivership, and then they realize, or now's the time that they want to hire special litigation counsel um, to pursue these types of claims. Uh, usually there's limited estate resources. Uh, and so, you know, we've got to not only take the case on a contingent fee basis, but in some cases we have to advance costs. Uh, and so that's another factor that we have to consider, like what's this gonna cost us? You know, wh where's gonna be, where's the expense? Uh, is there an expert witness required, which is very expensive? Is there, are there a lot of documents that we have to upload to a, um, to an e-discovery platform? You know, what's the monthly on that? So these are all, th and, and do we have to cover that? And so those are all things that we have to consider, not unlike a lot of lawyers that do contingent fee work, um, but contingent on commercial litigation, you know, that's pretty unusual that, that, you know, people do commercial, I, I've come across a handful of lawyers that, that will do contingent work on commercial torts. Um, but, you know, we usually, we're very selective in that we know the source of where the sort of the referral and where it's coming from. Even though if we're, let's say we're doing work for a fiduciary we've never done work for, you know, we usually get an introduction by a source that we know, um, and we can do our own diligence, at least preliminarily, to know whether or not this is something that we want to do. There's another layer of diligence in terms of strategy on how to handle the case based upon who the lawyer is on the other side. Um, because if they're a sophisticated lawyer, they know these cases, they handle these cases, they're going to defend in a different way than someone who doesn't. And, and that's just a calculus, you know, something we take into account uh, as well as part of the strategy. So, you know, it's just experience, I'd say. How, how much, uh, how much of the, how much have you uh, run into lawyers who are defending who, you know, they know that you got them. Um, mm -hmm. You know that you got them, but they want to make sure that the case is worthwhile for them. And maybe their client doesn't want to, you know, judgment or doesn't want to settle right away. So mm -hmm. it's they're just dragging stuff out. How often does that happen? I mean, it happens again. It depends on the 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 quality of the lawyer on the other side, um, because a quality lawyer is going to come in and say, look, I, I need to do my investigation. Allow me to do my investigation. And then we can come back and see if there's a way that we can try to resolve this case or if we're not going to resolve this case, um, where your strengths and weaknesses are, or where my strengths and weaknesses are. And I respect that. Uh, and that usually means that we're going to get to a point where the parties likely can reach an amicable resolution. There are some lawyers that come in guns blazing. Uh, this is garbage. This case does, you know, you have this case has no legs. Uh, there's no coverage. There's no whatever. And you know, it ends up differently. Um, and we're gonna we litigate for a while with those people, uh, whether to conclusion or ultimately get a settlement where we probably could have done that 
you know, before having to litigate for a while. And, but, you know, again, it depends on the quality of the lawyer, uh, on, you know, and, and their level of knowledge and sophistication of these cases. I mean, it, uh, sorry, just a, a DNO case, like there's, there's three components to it, especially where there's insolvency, right? You have the insolvency component, uh, which is one layer. You have the DNO claims, the breach of fiduciary duty and understanding both prosecution and defense of those, and then the insurance aspect. Uh, and so not everyone understands all three of those, you know, components. Uh, and, and that is when, you know, I wouldn't say trouble, but that's when, you know, issues could arise and, and create some, some, some problems down the road. I understand that the defense lawyer needs to be educated and needs to educate their clients as to what our case is. And the insurance company, if there's an insurance carrier, needs to be educated as well. Uh, and we do try to facilitate that as best we can. <laughs> yeah, facilitate through a punch in the mouth. <laughs> no, no. A, a, I mean, a, a litigation punch in the mouth. I mean, normal normal litigation, if you run across a knucklehead like that who comes in guns a-blazing and is like, mm -hmm. this is crap, we're going to kill you, you know, yeah. that's a great case for for litigation that is just, it's not good for the client. It's good for the lawyers, right? Because that knucklehead's going to push his client to do things that shouldn't be done, and it's going to be yeah. expensive. It's going to be expensive yeah. for both sides, right? Sure. But this is not. You have this is this is a subset of something that's relatively sophisticated. So, um, how how often do you get like a you know one of these yahoos who's just going to come in and be like oh amron i know that guy we got him <laughs> which is the which is music to your ears i'm sure but how often does that happen um i mean it happens periodically i i've been doing this long enough that i know uh you know most of the players i mean that you know uh both plaintiff and defense side um but you know, when, when we're in a jurisdiction that that we've not been before or that we don't r routinely practice in, you know, we certainly will come across lawyers that we don't know. But um, I certainly reach out my hand um, at the beginning, at the outset of it, uh, offer up a process, and and you know, if there's been times when you know we've been able to agree upon that process, and there's times when we haven't been, you know. Um, but I get a flavor pretty quickly of whether or not, you know, they're a lawyer who is, you know, is, is looking out perhaps for the best interest of their clients. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to reach a settlement, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that we're able to work through the issues. That's okay too. But my view is like, let's give, why not give it a chance? And if we have to litigate, then fine, then we'll litigate. That's okay too. We're all, you know, we're all adults, we're all professionals, but it's certainly, um, you know, especially in, in today's world, you know, and when, you know, you can file a case today, but if it's a jury trial case, when is that going to trial? Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, there's some people who they don't want litigation filed against them. Um, you know, and, and again, it's, it's making sure that we can, you know, we can, um, advance a process where everybody can make educated decisions. One way or the other. Talk about representation. Talk about representation on the other side. So you have mm -hmm. the insurance company has uh, has attorneys, 
And the assumption I'm going to make is that they have decent attorneys because they're they're going to have their attorneys work on more than one of these cases. So they've done some vetting of them. Then doesn't the the company or the directors, the individual directors and officers, generally they should have their own personal counsel if they're if they're you know handling things correctly. How often does that happen? Yeah. So most of the time you've got lawyers who come in who are counsel for the officers and directors. They have relationships with the insurance company, but they're clearly counsel for the officer directors. And maybe the insurance company either has an adjuster who's a lawyer in-house, and so they don't need outside counsel. Sometimes they retain outside counsel. Again, depends on the case, depends on the adjuster and the insurance company. Um, and so you have that separation. But every now and again, and I've got a case uh, where you've got uh, counsel who's captured and the lines are blurred uh, because at some point, if the directors and officers feel like they can settle um, and, and have the insurance company pay, uh, then they may look to the insurance company and say, pay, um, you know, you, you need to do this. And so you need to have that. I think it's good to have that separation uh, between the defense of the directors and officers and the insurance company. But it doesn't always work out that way. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it, again, it's on that, you don't need it. It depends on the, the lawyer, you know, and, and their understanding of their obligations, their understanding of the issues um, and, and trying to advance what's in the best interest of the client. Why, why do people need to separate uh, their, the counsel that's handling the rest of the insolvency from the DNO case, why is it a good idea to have just a specific, you know, a specific uh, person or a group representing you in a DNO case versus the rest of the insolvency matter? Yeah, so the insolvency matter is going to be the company, right? So the company's going to have its own counsel, and then individuals need their own counsel, uh, and they they really can't have the same counsel because there's a conflict there, right? The 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 claims that are being asserted are being asserted are really the company's claims uh, against the officers and directors so you can't have mm -hmm. the insolvency council who represents the company also represent the individuals uh you can't have that so that's why there that needs to be separate um but i you know there, there usually is not there's really no issue with that typically um but where again it blurs is if you've got you know, counsel who might be captured, counsel for an insurance company, um, you know, who, who, there may be some issues there. And when you use the term captured, what does that, what does that refer to? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I, and I use that and I'm sure people are going to roll their eyes and get mad at me for using that term. And I don't mean anything derogatory by it in any way. But basically, there are law, law firms that they've built their business on getting repeat business from insurance companies. And so when someone gets sued and they make a claim, the insurance company either sends the case over, it depends on the insurance policy and the company and their policies, but they either send the case over to a particular uh, lawyer or they send a list of names to the client. Uh, and so they get their business from the insurance company. All right. So people are going to listen to this interview at the end of January 2021. We're still kind of in a in a pan well we definitely are in a pandemic in in Florida we're pretending we're not in a pandemic anymore but um, how does that impact 
the, your ability to work up these cases and you know bring them to uh, a reasonably time uh, sensitive conclusion. Can you do it yeah. in a pandemic? So you know, interesting you say that, and I was worried about that. Um, the day we closed, March thirteenth of twenty twenty. Um, I was on the phone pitching a significant matter uh, outside of the state of Florida, um, and we ended up getting that matter. We uh, started our investigation, you know, a couple weeks later after we got officially retained. We had some delay because of getting access to documents and information, which all can be done electronically. Uh, we brought the claim. Uh, if memory serves me, in October. So seven months after uh, we, and th this is a sign significant, uh, like I think it's nine figures. Uh, mm. And so, at least the demand. So, you know, it took us seven months, but we really had to, you know, push. Um, and, you know, we, again, we have a process internally of how we do that uh, and what we go through and what we look through and how we build the claim um, but we could do it. We did it during a pandemic. Um, the next step is wanting to get people's attention to it um, and pushing the case, right? And pushing it to the point where, you know, uh, it, you can get the insurance company, you can get the directors and officers' attention to it. Um, there's some, again, if, if you're before, if you're pre-suit, if you, before you filed the claim, there's some leverage there. There's, you know, in terms of uh, them not wanting to be part of litigation um, and us wanting to file it. So there's some timing there. But once you file it, you know, you can push cases and different judges are doing different things. And, you know, you can some judges are taking the position that I'm the judge is going to push their cases to get them to the point where they're ready for trial without delay, or, you know, unreasonable delay. And then the cases will sit in a queue before they're ready for trial. So there's some benefit there, but I know that uh, in the non-commercial context in particular, that there are a lot of cases that are, are you know, just kind of sitting and collecting dust because there's no, there's no um, rush on the defendant's part or the insurance company's part to, you know, settle because the cases aren't going to trial anytime soon. Um, so mm -hmm. I know that that is the case uh, in there. Um, from our perspective in an insolvency context, you know, uh, these are all, a lot of times these are all post uh, confirmation. You've got li liquidating trustees that, you know, want to move cases along and we're doing the best we can to advance those, again, either pre-suit or, or post, uh, post litigation. Um, but yeah, the pandemic is definitely going to slow stuff down if you're in court. Uh, I will tell you it's easier to get a little bit easier depending on the judge, depending on the court, to get hearings, um, to get hearings, excuse me, I'm sorry, to get hearings um, than, than it used to be. Um, but, you know, trials are, are it's going to take a long time before a trial happens, for sure, especially on cases and like this, you know. Sure, sure. Is there is there any danger that the because there's the insolvency proceeding that there's not there's not going to be anything left. I mean, the insurance company, if if they're insured, they got to pay. So regardless yeah. of whether the company's gone, right? Could the company still could the, could that prevent the dissolution of the entity? No. So so either a you know if it's a, again a, it could be a receivership an assignment for the benefit of creditors a chapter seven or eleven. 
these are all if we're asserting a claim, we're trying to recover money to pay creditors. That means there's either very little money to pay creditors or no money. And Mm -hmm. so we're trying to go find that money to bring into the estate to to pay creditors. Uh, And so, you know, that's sometimes that's their only hope. You know, we get Mm -hmm. brought in and they're like, hey, there's no money to pay fees. There's no money to pay costs. There's no money to pay creditors. We're, We're relying on you. Good luck. Yeah. And, and so we're the only hope in some cases of a recovery to creditors. Last question on, on, on this topic, and then um, mm-hmm. I'm sensitive to the time, so we'll wrap up. Is there, is there personal liability? Is there ever personal liability? So the directors or officers make just such horrendous decisions, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. the insurance company is like, look, I mean, you can't expect us to cover that. Is there ever personal liability on the part? Of, so those people, the, this this is continuing. Those people go and they find other boards to sit on and other companies to screw up while this is hanging over their head. Is that is that a real is that a real thing? Yeah. So so there's personal liability to the directors and officers, whether or not there's coverage for some or all of that, depending on the amount of coverage and the amount of damage, uh, then for their liability you know, they still could be on the hook uh, for whatever, either a settlement or, you know, again, they have to agree to that, but, or a judgment. Um, Typically, there, let me step back. Insurance policies are contracts and there are exclusions that are laid out. And so if there are certain actions that an officer director takes that fall within a stated exclusion, there may not be coverage. If an act Mm. falls outside of a uh, of what the contract, uh, the insurance contract says that they cover time from a time period perspective, there may not be coverage. But there's the, the liability is personal to the directors and officers, but there may be insurance that covers some or all of that. Um, and in some cases, insurance is insufficient to cover the damage. And you look to the directors and officers for payment, whether it be, again, on a settlement or a judgment. You know, you know, and, and, and collect against them. And that's where you start to look at the collectability of the insiders, uh, the directors and officers and, and see, you know, if there's an ability to recover against them. The 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 issue on on director and officer liability insurance policies that is that they are all what's called um, um, called cannibalizing. Um, but basically, the limits of liability are reduced by defense costs. So every dollar that is spent defending a litigation, defending a claim, reduces the amount of li- of coverage. So if you have a million dollars in coverage and you spend and the defense spends $350,000 <laughs> defending the case, well then you have $650,000 left on that insurance policy. Oh, that's that's an interest. I didn't know that. That's an interesting aspect of it. And if they had if they had an employment contract and it said the company would indemnify them, they're mm-hmm. still on the hook. So there's indemnification claims. There's issues on indemnification. Again, typically um, the claims that we are involved in arise out of an insolvency. So they can assert their indemnification claim against the estate. But what's that worth? Mm. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's contractual uh, and common law indemnification rights um, as well. And, you know, again, that there's also some coverage for the company based on indemnification and all that, but I don't, I don't want to 
don't want to bore any. In I don't your, want to bore in your experience, how? Anymore. No, no. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I mean, you and I may be the only people listening. So if I care about it, then let's talk about it. Um, <laughs> you know, in the in your experience, how many how many directors and officers mm-hmm. have been educated enough on this? Mm-hmm. Because when you just describing that, and this is you know, people should mark this. At, point in the interview because this is the point in the interview where the hair on the back of your neck stands up if you've ever sat on a board or been you know part of an executive committee and helped make serious decisions for a company because mm-hmm. you're making decisions that could have millions of dollars if not beyond that of of yeah. uh, offer you millions of dollars of exposure um you know you need to make sure that you take this Seriously, in your experience, how many people know that? Most, I mean, most of the companies we deal with, they do. And the smaller companies, they don't necessarily know, but they do know enough to get the insurance. And that's the first thing I ask people when they call me and say, hey, I've been asked to sit on this board. And I say, well, have you seen the insurance policy yet? And they mm-hmm. say, oh, what? Uh, you, need, you, need to see, you need to look at the insurance policy. You need to make sure that there's adequate coverage in place to protect you and the rest of the board. Um, you know, I always like to say, hey, if you do your job and do it well, you know, yeah, things may go wrong, but the law protects those that actually do a good job, actually educate themselves, actually fulfill their fiduciary responsibilities. And if a decision goes wrong, a decision goes wrong. Um, but, you know, um, the insurance coverage is super important and something that I always tell everyone that they need to check on to make sure that you know it's there and that they think it's adequate and that it is is good solid coverage yeah and if you're a member of a board or uh the leadership in a leadership position in a company and you're advocating Mm -hmm. for a position you believe not to be correct document your communication (laughs) as thoroughly as you possibly can so that it's defensible (laughs) well you got to document it you know there's also you know opportunities to educate yourself and you know not just rely on what what someone's telling you if if there's an opportunity to get you know a third party to come in and provide you with you know uh, a review and 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 insight uh, for you to make your decision you know it's again it's being fully educated um, making sure you understand what's at stake uh, before you make those decisions. Um, and, and I get that sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes budgets don't call for that. Um, but you know, that's, that's where some officers directors can be protected. Again, it depends a case by case basis, decision by decision basis. All right, Brett. So you can be, uh, you can be pulled into one of these cases pretty much anywhere in the country, correct? It doesn't have to be, you're, you're licensed in Florida, but you've worked on cases all over the place. Correct. All right. So how does somebody, go ahead. We get local counsel. Explain, explain to me. Yeah. Explain to people how that works. So there's a, a branch of the company in Florida or somebody needs help with a with a, uh, a creditor in Florida or somebody needs help with an issue that arises in Florida and they call you. No. Um, so, you know, example uh, in Seattle, we've had a few matters out there, um, you know, a couple of them, uh, you know, we had a relationship with. Um, a fiduciary who gets appointed um, receiverships and sort of a timing of an interaction and a new case that, that she had, had, had been appointed on a few years back and a conversation about, you know, director and officer liability and, and whatever led 
to uh, her retaining us um, and get and us getting a good result for her. She then subsequently got retained in, in another case, immediately called us, uh, realizing that there may be some claims. Uh, and so we're, you know, that's one one way. Uh, another way is just connection with, you know, lawyers who, you know, may be involved in uh, insolvency, either representing creditors committees or representing fiduciaries, but don't do this kind of work and realize that maybe, you know, we need a specialist to come in uh, and we just get opportunities to pitch, um, you know, uh, and, and we can come in uh, in courts all over the country. We get local counsel uh, that help us with, you know, um, local rules and, and court rules and things like that uh, as well. And, you know, we, we have handled cases from Delaware to Seattle to Texas to New York uh, and obviously throughout the state of Florida, among others. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with you if they if they want to call you and seek your counsel or call you and bring you into a case? Well, you know, the the World Wide Web is wonderful. So, of course, we have our website, uh, .com. Uh Check me out on LinkedIn as well. Uh, FloridaBar.org uh, is my contact information. It's also on our website. Um, that's that's kind of how. Yeah. All right, we'll put all that in the in the show notes. Why don't you, uh, for the people who are uh, who are like jogging and they're going to put their put your phone number in their phone right now because as soon as they're finished with their run, they're going to call you. What's the what's mm -hmm. the best number for them to reach you? What's your office number? Three zero five three seven nine seven nine zero four. One more time. Three zero five three seven nine seven nine zero four. All right. Thank you so much, Brett Amron. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. You know, I am only as smart as the sum of all my smart friends, and I put Brett Amron right at the top of the list. So we're really lucky that we were able to, to get him here today. I would love, Brett, to have you back to talk about entrepreneurship and the practice of law because you're a fantastic entrepreneur as well as a lawyer. So thanks for joining us, Brett. And uh, those of you who are listening, thank you for joining us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. And looking forward to having you back with us on the inside.